today's podcast is brought to you by Citizen Path. It's a new way to prepare U.S. immigration forms. It's an online service that makes it easy to prepare and file USCIS applications and petitions. Believe me, as a nationalized citizen, I know the hassle. Citizen Path gives you instant alerts if there's a problem. The service even provides a guarantee, yes, a guarantee that USCIS will approve the form. Citizen Path was designed by immigration attorneys, but it's significantly less expensive than an attorney. And here's the fun part. Immigrantly listeners can use coupon code immigrantly to save 15%. You can visit their website at citizenpath.com. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. And I'm so excited that I discovered it as an indie podcaster. It allows me to monetize my podcast with a flat rate. And so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's Pod go.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o and be sure to add our podcast immigrantly in the how did you hear about podgo section of the application Growing up in a space where I never saw myself represented or when I did see myself represented, particularly as a Muslim immigrant Arab woman, it was often as a victim on screen. That just didn't represent the, you know, incredible matriarchal power and, and history of incredible women that I have have come from. Oftentimes what happens is that rather than being in the driver's seat and being the drivers of our stories, we're brought in as consultants at the end of the process after everything has been done to just say, good job, stamp of approval. And that's just not enough. The only way that we build empathy, that we humanize a dehumanized group, that we start to understand that difference is not something to shy away from, pretend doesn't exist, or be afraid of, but rather something to celebrate. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Immigrantly. You know what I think about all of you a lot, our listeners. I'm always curious to know where you are and what you are doing when you tune into our new episodes. Right now, I imagine some of you must be tuning in from the beach after a morning swim or even a coffee shop with the AC blasting on high. We are in the thick of summer and like you, I am soaking up every bit of the heat and energy. And by the way, the other day I was in New York City having dinner indoors for the first time since the pandemic hit. And let me tell you this, it was such a momentous experience because to me, what was once such a mundane act transformed into one of gratitude for this 
reemergence of sorts of normal. And I really hope all of you are finding yourself in those stark instances of peace. But enough about me, because if you let me be, I could go on for another hour talking about all my experiences. Today, we have a very special guest joining us to speak on Muslim identities and their representation in media. To say Areej Mikati is making waves in the world of non-profit is an understatement. Just from our conversation, I can see how Areej's work and its impact are felt beyond in anti-racism, coalition building and solidarity action. I'll have to let her share the rest. So let's jump in. Arita, I am so, so, so excited to have you on Immigrantly and I have a laundry list of questions. <laughs> so I'll try to control myself. Um, sometimes I can go overboard. But let's start with the basics because in preparation for this interview, I was listening to your other interviews and it seems like the work that you're doing is pretty much tied to your journey and your background. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to get to chat with you today. And I would say that, you know, the work is very, very personally resonant for me. Um, I actually was born in Tripoli, Lebanon uh, at the end of the Civil War there. And my family immigrated to the United States, the Midwest, uh, when I was about five years old. i essentially, you know, started my life in America as an English as a second language student. Um, I, you know, lived in a space where there just weren't very many Muslim folks around. And it really truly has felt like a full circle moment and a dream come true to be able to say to my inner child, look what we've been able to accomplish with our community. Growing up in a space where I never saw myself represented or when I did see myself represented, particularly as a Muslim immigrant Arab woman, it was often as a victim on screen. That just didn't represent the, you know, incredible matriarchal power and, and history of incredible women that I have have come from. And it is just, it's been such a pleasure to sort of focus in on how we can use art as an engine for social change and to, to tell our authentic stories. So let's talk about representation. You mentioned that you didn't see authentic representation of Muslims, specifically Muslim women, and I can totally relate to that. <laughs> but when did you notice that there was something profoundly wrong with how the media operates and the misrepresentation that basically infiltrates its every corner, right? I'm just thinking, was it this realization during your childhood? Was it in college when you gained exposure to these critical lenses? What was the trigger for you? You know, I, I think it was actually very early on that I started to notice the, these issues. Uh, even when I was, you know, very, very young, the movie Aladdin, uh, the, an the original animated movie Aladdin on Disney was really problematic. And it was it was interesting because I think a lot of young Muslim women and young, you know, particularly people from like the Arab world or, you know, the South Asian world, et cetera, feel a real connection to Jasmine <laughs> because she's she's all we've she's all we've got, right? But at the same time, Jasmine is this really spunky woman who is just being held 
down by all these different men in her life. And it's, it's just incredibly frustrating to watch and, and incredibly frustrating that that's the person that, um, we had to clamor onto because she was the only person that even looked slightly similar to us. So I think that, you know, I noticed it pretty early on, but I would say when it really, really came to the fold for me was post 9-11. Mm-hmm. I was in seventh grade, uh, you know, living in Minnesota when 9-11 happened, an incredible tragedy. But I do remember in that moment, my life changing. And I think that's true for a lot of uh, Muslim Americans of my generation that in an instant, we were suddenly not just an Orientalist curiosity, but we were immediately, we immediately became the enemy. And even as a seventh grader who was 12 years old, uh, it was very, very clear to me when, you know, the teachers rolled in the television and opened it up, uh, turned it on, and I felt everybody's face turn towards me when the uh, journalists said who they thought was responsible. Do you think things are changing now? You know, I do think things are changing, but unfortunately, I don't think that they're changing enough. Um, I know that uh, we at Pillars Fund, which is the space that I work at, we are grant givers and in partnership with an organization called ISPU, the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, that has actually done a lot of research around uh, bullying in schools. And we have found that uh, Muslim kids are the most likely to be bullied. And so I think it is still a major Mm -hmm. issue. That being said, I do think that when it comes to representation, we do have a chance and opportunity to do something very differently right now, because I think this moment feels different. It's not necessarily that things Mm -hmm. have changed yet, but I do think the interest has changed. Uh, I do think that people are recognizing, you know, thanks to many other communities that also belong to Muslim communities or have overlap, like Black communities, like Latinx communities, like, um, you know, communities of color across the United States are really Uh, one, a part of the Muslim community, and two, we've learned from those communities how to really kind of take advantage of the moment and organize in a really powerful way that leads to change. So I would say, you know, uh, what I've noticed in this moment is that the interest is there and that, that we're the solution we've been waiting for. So I'm really excited that we've been able to make such such great inroads in the industry. Let's talk about making inroads. I want to talk about something that happened recently, and I believe a lot of people are very excited about it. <laughs> Pillars Fund in partnership with USC, Annenberg Inclusion Initiative and Ford Foundation launched an initiative to increase Muslim representation in film. And from what I understand, it is a multidimensional collaboration. It's led by Muslim identify artists and advocates like yourself. And to be honest, I'm a bit jealous because grantees <laughs> of this one will be mentored by people like Riz Ahmed and Rami Yusuf. I've been trying to get both of them on my show and they haven't responded. Just oh, no. <laughs> an FII. <laughs> so let's talk about this. What is your hope for this project in terms of the effect you see it having on Muslim participation, both in screenwriting and on the screen? Yeah, it's a great question. I think ultimately, uh, one, we're very, very excited and grateful for the partnership, which, as you said, has involved years of work with with a few different institutions that we're really, really proud to be associated with, to be partnering with, and to continue our work with. 
But what I think is is very exciting about this is it's really the first time that all of the, mm. you know, quote unquote, uh, kind of Muslim trailblazers in the United huh. States and the UK have come together to say, we're, you know, with our powers combined, we are going to do all we can to build the next bench of great Muslim storytellers. And uh, that feels pretty unique. Um, like you said, you know, we've got folks like Riz and Rami. We've also got folks like Nida Mansour, who just um, created the show We Are Lady Parts, which focuses on uh, a Muslim punk band that is led by women. It's on Peacock. Um, so we, we've got several folks that are both, uh, you know, newly established and then folks that are more established that are really ready to say, I am really proud of my success, but I recognize that uh, an exception does not change the rule. That's something that Riz mm. often says. And uh, I think they're really ready to not be the exception any longer. So the idea here is that um, what we want to do is build a bench of the next great Muslim storytelling champions and provide them the access that they need to make the right network connections, to um, build the skills that they need, and then also have the mm. championing of some really established and incredible artists behind them to get their stories told. And I think in particular, we're really interested on just changing the dominant narrative, which is oftentimes um, our, our study with USC found that over 70% of Muslim characters that are on screen are either directly committing violence or are victims of violence. That is a shocking statistic. I mean, that serves to just deeply dehumanize people. So what we're really interested in with this fellowship is what does it look like when Muslims write a sci-fi? What does it look like yeah. when Muslims write a rom-com? Uh, what other stories do we have to tell from the abundance of talent that we know exists in our community? And we're really excited to bring that to the fold. And we're, we're also just deeply honored and thrilled that many of the networks that we've had some conversations with are deeply, deeply excited to partner with us and to provide industry mentorship from their top executives as well. So it feels like a very exciting time and I'm really hopeful for what this will do for representation overall. And I'm hoping that this will move away from binaries that we see on the screen, right? There's good Muslim versus bad Muslim. Muslim who is somehow in support of the white protagonist, right? So I am really excited about how you are approaching this. But there is an observation that has been weighing on my mind, and I want to get your take on this. Sure. You know, being an indie podcaster, podcast producer, in fact, I'm hyper aware of the dynamic that happens in content creation space, especially when it comes to influencers of color, the ones that you mentioned. And I know it's a problem that isn't isolated to this field. Ultimately, it is a product of whiteness, how few people hog creative processes and creative spaces. But what I have noticed is that people of color, when they have power and access to power, they seem to hold on to it. There is this sense of competition and in a way, transactional relationships among people of color. Do you see that? How do we unlearn that? Because the last thing we should want is to have encounters that are very transactional in nature. Yeah, wow, that's a really powerful question. And I think, you know, it goes back to what you were saying, which is that the scarcity mindset is actually a product of white supremacy culture. So hmm. that's actually, you know, 
our fight is, again, if we really commit to being truly and deeply anti-racist, that should push us to go away from the scarcity mindset and instead lean into the abundance mindset. And I think you've already heard me use the term abundance of talent in our communities. Mm. It's something that's really important to us at Pillars. Abundance is one of our core values. Um, We really deeply believe that there is enough for everyone. There's more than enough for everyone. So I think mm. I think that the idea here is one, um, yes, I do sometimes see that, but I do think it's a product of white supremacy culture because white supremacy culture pretty intentionally pits people of color and other marginalized communities against each other in order to preserve its own power by saying your presence is a limited edition concept and that you should feel lucky. <laughs> you know, you should feel lucky to be in it. So don't mess this up. But the truth is that I think, you know, that's one of the reasons that it was so important to us to build this incredible advisory committee of people like Mahershala Ali and Lena Khan and Sana Amanat, who are, are also part of our advisory committee, because all of these Muslims coming together and saying, I made it, but I also deeply believe that you can too, and that there's space mm. for you, and that I'm going to champion you in my spaces of power is how we change that culture. So the fact that Riz is always saying, I'm an exception and an exception doesn't change the rule and we're here to change the rules is a very mm. powerful message that I think we we might not hear enough as people of color. And we're hopeful that having this you know group of this very large group of of Muslim trailblazers <laughs> coming together and kind of reiterating that and saying that, you know, we believe deeply in extending a hand down to pull someone else up with us because we know there is space is how we start to change that. And additionally, we've been really pushing industry key decision makers to acknowledge that as well. Um, we've told folks, wow. you know, um, we have this Muslim visibility challenge that we're asking uh, different companies to take, and it's two pieces. One is to sunset terror tropes over the next 18 months. And the second mm. piece is to sign at least one first look deal with a new Muslim artist in the next 18 months, at least one. Uh, because we yeah. know that even though some of these spaces, you know, like Amazon does have a deal with Rami and Riz and uh, other folks have deals as well, but we know that one is not enough. Uh, you have the opportunity to really curate and take risks on people with new, fresh narratives that you wouldn't often take risks on. And so we're really pushing that piece of like, put your money where your mouth is and take a risk on us and we won't let you down. I love it. I love it. Now, let's talk about something that our listeners may be wondering about. Now, I know social justice work is tiring more likely than not it's on those of color that the burden falls right but how can white folks who are say listening to this podcast support the cause especially in increasing representation in the media what can they do Oh, yeah, it's a great question. I think there's so much that they can do. First, from a gatekeeper perspective, open the gate and let me drive, right? I think oftentimes <laughs> oftentimes, um, gatekeepers in the industry, uh, again, because people of color and other marginalized communities like the disabled community, like, um, you know, the LGBTQIA community, et cetera, which oftentimes there's overlapping groups, there just isn't as much access. And so there isn't as much experience. So often Mm. um, they say, you know, well, this person doesn't have enough experience and this person doesn't have enough experience. So 
the idea here is you have to let us build experience. Right. And we can't get it unless you allow us to build it. So what I would hope to see um, from, you know, key decision makers that are allies to our cause is to, again, take those risks on us and allow us to actually be in the driver's seat of our own stories. Oftentimes what happens is that Rather than being in the driver's seat and being the drivers of our stories, we're brought in as consultants at the end of the process after everything has been Ah. done to just say, good job, stamp of approval. And that's just not enough. We need to be part of the process from the beginning. That's the first thing. And I think the second piece is I would love for audiences to show up, right? Like I connect to someone, you know, I think something that I've often thought about is, you know, growing up as a, a Muslim Lebanese woman immigrant. I have connected a lot with characters that have no overlapping identities with me or very few. And I think that Mm. I would really push audiences to stretch their empathy muscle, build empathy, and broaden the types of protagonists, storytelling, et cetera, that you are willing to put your dollar on. Um, And I I really hope that audiences can, you know, continue to give shows like Rami and, and films like Sound of Metal, et cetera, a chance. Give We Are Lady Parts on Peacock a chance and get to spend some time with these like five really nuanced Muslim women that are just trying to make punk music together. And I guarantee you're going to have a good time. And so the idea is like support our work and actually ask to see it so that you can prove to the powers that be that there's a market there. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you probably already know by now, we talk a lot about mental health on this podcast and the importance of taking the time to take care of yourself. In fact, we've dedicated an entire season to it. And there are so many different ways to do that, whether it's meditation or getting a massage. But let's be honest. Ice cream can only go so far and sometimes what you really need is to connect with someone. On previous, I've been open about the fact that therapy has helped me a lot when it comes to managing my mental health. If you've been struggling with stress, anxiety, or if you just want to learn effective preventative tools, BetterHelp might be for you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's convenient, affordable, and you can start with your therapist in under 48 hours of signing up. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about and take the leap. For immigrantly listeners, BetterHelp is giving 10%, yes, 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash immigrantly. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash immigrantly. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode.
Arij, I want to circle back to something that you said, and you you talked a lot about anti-racism, and I know in addition to media, you have worked uh, within that space as well, anti-racism, equity work, through channels of storytelling. That's what you do. Why do you believe in the power of storytelling in expanding cultural understanding and generating solidarity and coalition building? Yeah, it's it's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking it. I so deeply believe in this. I've always believed in it. Um, I, I think that the main takeaway for me around storytelling is there are so many people in the United States who believe that they have never met a Muslim, right? So this is just one example. The majority of people in the United States say they don't know a Muslim. And the only way that we build empathy, that we humanize a dehumanized group, that we start to understand that difference is not something to shy away from, pretend doesn't exist or be afraid of, but rather something to celebrate and to learn mm. from and to um, build bridges across. That's when we are able to make pretty tremendous changes that actually lead to genuine policy changes that, that will then lead to actual differences, life or death differences in the lives of marginalized people. And I really, really mm. believe that what storytelling does is exercises and stretches our empathy muscle in a way that would otherwise never be stretched, um, particularly when we don't have the opportunity like Americans in the United States um, who say that they've never met a Muslim, right? Which might not mm. even be true, by the way, <laughs> because... <laughs> Many Muslims are not identifiable by just walking down the street. It's not something that you that's can just true. point at say, and say that's a Muslim. Uh, so I often even question whether that is true. But what the storytelling allows us to do is actually expand our definition of who Muslims are, what they're related to, how we define them, etc. And right now, when you see that, you know, only 2% of films have a Muslim character and that... Uh, you know, over 70% of them are either victims of or perpetrators of violence. Well, that tells you a lot, a lot about what mm. the media believes a Muslim to be. We are so much beyond that. And I'm I'm excited to share the other pieces of us, <laughs> the the real authentic <laughs> pieces of us uh, with, with the world at large. And I think storytelling does that and facilitates those connections. Has there ever been a time where you saw this really working in your job, the impact of storytelling. Absolutely. Um, I would say particularly with children, when children mm. are exposed to uh, books, literature, film, storytelling, etc., they are immediately met with excitement and curiosity, and it actually genuinely changes the way that they react to their classmates. We've seen that happen pretty um, point blank. I would say the other piece is um, I have absolutely loved, you know, I am a creative consultant on the TV show Rami, uh, and I have absolutely loved what that show did because it is not a show that is just for Muslim people. I want to change, and I heard you can help me. Speak the straightforward word, brother. I know I can be better. I look at my parents and how strong they are. Maybe we should start recycling. I think we should. I want to know who I am. I want to explore. They don't want a man like me anymore. They want a man like you. He's a little bit like a woman, but he's still officially a man. 
actually have a friend, um, Adam, I'm going to give him a shout out, who I, you know, is a black man. And Adam shared with me after he watched Rami, um, he does not ident identify as Muslim. And he said, Adij, I felt like I was watching something that I shouldn't be allowed to watch, but was also so familiar to me uh, in uh -huh. my own community. And I loved that because what he's talking about is this concept that my dear colleague and friend Zahir Ali talks about, which is building intimate knowledge. And intimate right. knowledge is this idea of being able to be welcome to take a peek behind the curtain through the gaze of the person who has actually directly experienced those things. So rather than you know, a non-Muslim person sharing their perspective on what a Muslim is, what Ami's show does is say, this is what it looks like when you go to make ablution in the mosque and there's an old man who like grabs your foot to try to help you do it right, right? Like <laughs> those, are, those are things that like are so intimate to me. I have experienced such similar things, but most people would never see that otherwise. And they also have similar experiences in their own communities that they can then connect it to. So building that intimate knowledge and allowing that peek behind the curtain is something that really genuinely changes the the closeness that people feel to a certain community. You know, I am a huge fan of Rami. And to me, it seems like this is one show which is unapologetic about Muslim identity. And yet it does not claim to represent 1.2 billion Muslims, which it cannot. And yet every Muslim that I've met in some form or shape can relate to the show. And that's the beauty of the show. But there are people who have talked about misogyny on the show. Do you agree? That's a good question. I think that there are moments um, where, you know, I think misogyny has come up on the show, but I also think that hmm. that is part of our culture, not just our culture, yeah. but a part of the human culture. I mean, the patriarchy that is present all across, um, you know, the world and the anti-blackness that is present all across the world. These are global systems of oppression. And so do I agree that the show is imperfect? Absolutely. And Rami would tell you the same thing. But what I, what I like about the show is what I love about the show actually is that the show's job is not to be a PR machine for Muslims. The show's yeah. job is instead to say, this is one man's experience and one man's reality. And there are going to be parts that you relate to and there are going to be parts that you don't relate to or maybe even vehemently disagree with or oppose. And what is special about it is that at the end of the day, what it is, is honest. And when mm. we are able to create honest work, that is when we actually, you know, the more specific a story gets, the more universal its themes are. So I know that, you know, Rami has shared with me that he, that people have reached out to him who don't even identify as Muslim and are struggling with their own faith practice in the same way that Rami's character does on the show and have said like, I really relate to this. Um, or people that have said, this has actually made me want to, you know, get closer to my faith practice or explore it more in a way that I haven't in many years. So I do agree, like the, the show is not perfect, but I also feel that as, you know, a storyteller and someone who consults on storytelling, that um, storytelling should not be a sanitized PR machine commercial. It should be nuanced. I love it. I love it. I think yeah. it should be nuanced and messy and real and honest. And I think once you get to that honesty, that's when people start to have some really juicy conversations. 
And I know that um, for many of us that work with Rami on the show, one of the most important things to the team is that the show creates conversation. Mm. So we're not trying to create a show where everyone is going to be comfortable all the time. But what we are trying to do is be in conversation with our communities about the show and being really open to that conversation. Uh, That's really what we're trying to do. And that's what nuanced storytelling is, right? That's what multidimensional characters look like. So side question, um, just because I am curious, what sort of content or TV series are you currently binging? Oh my gosh, it's such a great question. You know, I watch so much TV for work and so I haven't done it. I'm going to be honest, I don't have a ton of TV that I'm just watching like for fun, but I am so into Top Chef. <laughs> to be honest with you. I am so into Top Chef. I feel like it's just such a feel good show and it's been, they've done such a good job, uh, sort of changing its dynamic for the pandemic. And I'm really just very impressed with how they're able to make that work. But other than that, obviously, like I, I'm a big fan of, of Rami's show and, and I'm intimately familiar with it. So love to watch that. And then I've also been watching, um, I've been watching a lot of Handmaid's Tale, which I have very mixed feelings about. I've watched the first three episodes of season four, and I'm, I'm really curious about it because I think the show has a lot of opportunities to dig more into race and class, uh, but it seems kind of more primarily focused on gender and is not as intersectional as I'd like it to be. But I don't know what it is. It just pulls me in. I'm just so curious to see what happens next. A hundred percent. I completely agree. And I just finished watching it. So I'm not going to give you any spoilers or anything. But let's talk about the world of nonprofit. There is so much work and I've been part of it and you're part of it. And it's taxing and the environment requires a lot of energy. How do you preserve your passion and practice self-care? Because I've recently discovered how to take care of my mental health and I've been very vocal about it. So I'm just curious to know, what do you do? I'm so happy to hear that that's been a priority for you. And I I will say like that this has been a journey for me. Uh, It's not Mm. something I've always been good at and it's not even something I'm good at all the time now. Uh, But (laughs) I I do, I do have a few, a few pieces. So I, First, have done something that I really recommend for people to do, which is, you know, as a person who can oftentimes become very busy very quickly, I actually put time on my calendar and block it off a couple of times a week, a couple of evenings a week that just says me time. And oh. I'm, I'm, re- I'm revealing my secret here because the secret is... <laughs> The secret is when I say me time and, you know, my assistant is trying to find times for me to meet with folks or talk to folks, um, she knows that me time is already a commitment and that commitment is to myself. And so rather than just filling up, filling up, filling up until I have no space left for myself, I prioritize my time first. And then she's actually able to say completely honestly to people, I'm sorry, she has a commitment and that commitment is to me. So I I really have been trying to build systems that allow me to proactively protect myself. The second piece is it's really important to learn how to say no. And it can be so hard Mm. when the opportunities feel shiny and exciting. And, you know, I'm sure you feel this too, like as as a podcaster whose job is to have conversations with people, like I'm someone who I just want to meet everybody. I want to get to know them. I want to hear all about their lives. I want to learn from them. Like not every 
opportunity is one that is going to be aligned with my mental health, with the space that I have. Mm. And I think learning how to make those decisions is, is extremely important. The last piece I will say is I find it crucial. Like it's a, it's a non-negotiable that in nonprofit, we, we spend time cultivating a culture of fun and laughter and joy with our teams. It can be really, really easy to fall into this cycle of urgency and rapid response and I have to get this done right away or I'm going to, you know, let my community down, right? Like we put this so much pressure on ourselves, but it also is important to say like, let's make time to have a team lunch. Let's have a Slack channel that's all about like jokes. Let's actually like build some space for love and laughter and, and joy into work. And, and I think that culture of joy that we have at Pillars is actually one of the main reasons that I feel so sustained in this work, because it's a reminder that the work is a duty and it's a, it's a heavy one and it's a big responsibility, but my God, it's also an honor and a privilege and a deep joy to do it with those people and to get to do it at all. And that reminder just really keeps me buoyed. So I have a fun question for you. If you were on the receiving end of an unlimited grant, okay, this is like my dream. So I'm asking you, I'm just projecting it onto you. What sort of project would you spearhead? I actually know exactly what I would do. <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. This is a fun question. Okay. I have, I should probably not say this out loud, but I'm going to because trademark, nobody steal this idea. <laughs> I have a film idea that I am so, so interested in making. Oh, um, wow. yes. And, and what I would love for it to do is I want to make a heist style, like oceans 11 style film, but I want it to be uh, sort of leading Muslim women from across the diaspora. Um, huh. and, and I want those women, those young women to actually, um, <laughs> to actually, kind of strategize around um, stealing back the pieces from the British Museum that have been stolen from their countries in the first place and, take, love and taking them back <laughs> taking them back to their proper homes and so I think it would be a really interesting kind of like fun action thriller that would be like really joyful but also kind of a commentary on appropriation and uh, colonization and um, that is like my dream is to sit down and have time to write this screenplay and get like, so many amazing people from across the diaspora to be part of it. I just want to see it happen. That's what I would oh make. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love it to read. I can't wait to see that film. Thank you. <laughs> so in the end, I ask all my guests this question. If you were to define America in a word or a sentence or even a few sentences, how would you do that? I would say one word and that one word is unfinished. I love it. Oh my gosh, this is so good. I don't Thank think my, any of my guests have ever used this term and I've interviewed over 130 wow. guests. Wow, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Just kidding. You uh, did it, you did it. This is so good. Thank you. Yeah, I would say unfinished because I really feel like, you know, we're we're part of an America that has yet to be born and I really am deeply humbled and excited to be within the communities that I am and in partnership with the communities that I am to continue building that world, um, to get to a place where we just have a just future that we've all imagined um, as a reality. And um, I'm just really excited to be part of that work and humbled to be part of it. Arij, where can people find information about Pillars Fund, your partnership, 
We are at pillarsfund.org.org. You can find complete pages on our research, our fellowship, and also I would recommend signing up for our mailing list as we start to release more and more. We have a second uh, research piece that we're trying to release this fall, so uh, that's a little sneak peek that there's going to be more coming. Um, I would also say follow us on social media. We post a lot of exciting content there and also talk a lot about both our media work and our work with civic leaders um, on our Catalyze Fund side of our work. Uh, I would recommend um, following us on Instagram at Pillars Fund and on Twitter at Pillars underscore Fund. Thank you, Rich. This was so good. Thank you for coming on Immigrant Theme. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to talk to you. What a fun conversation. Now, if you believe in a more inclusive and diverse society, support organizations like Pillars Fund and go watch movies, TV shows that show Muslims in a more diverse, multidimensional light. Thank you for listening to Immigrantly. Come back next week when we have another incredible guest. Take care.